and turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 this morning. We're going to start in the beginning of that chapter, read the whole way through uh, Daniel chapter 3 this morning. In verse 1, starting verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, uh, perfects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Uh, In verse 4, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing fire. Uh, But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Uh, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned uh, summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Uh, Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. Uh, And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent 
And the fire so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took, Shab- took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has set an Uh, sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. Uh, For no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the province of Babylon. Uh, so what we want to look at today is just simply the idea of having confidence in God, the confidence in God to be able to endure whatever trials that we're going to be facing and, and to be able to endure that with confidence that God is able to do something in my life. Uh, even if it doesn't look the way I want it to look, that we would approach every situation that we are confronted with with confidence in God. And you see, I think that is one of the things that is, is lacking today. Uh, you know, I think to a lot of people, uh, belief in or faith in Christ is foolishness to them. Number one, it's foolishness because the Bible says that it's going to be foolishness to a lot of people. Uh, there are a lot of people that want nothing to do with it, to do with it simply because it's an offensive message. It's not offensive because we say it in a wrong way, maybe sometimes because we don't approach it in love or whatever it is, but the the gospel message in itself is offensive to human nature. There's no way around it. You see, because when we fell, when Adam and Eve chose to sin and rebel against God, the Bible says in the beginning that uh, we were all born with the image of God, but that if you you get into chapter 5 or 6, I can't remember off the top of my head in Genesis, it says then that after the fall... When Adam and Eve had more children, it says that they bore their children in the image of Adam. So the point is that something was broken in mankind. In the original design, we were created to have this sort of mirror within us that God could look on and see a reflection of himself. We were created in his image where we, he could see his glory reflected through mankind back to himself and to the world around him. That was broken when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. And since then, all mankind has been born with that broken image. There might be pieces of that image of God that remains. We're able to uh, uh, relate to God spiritually. We're able to be uh, beings that can interact with each other, to be conscious of things and to reason and things like that. There, There are pieces of that image of God that still remain within our hearts. But overall, the point is that that mirror that God placed in our hearts that his glory could reflect off of us, that was broken. And so when we receive salvation, when we talk about salvation, 
It is not a matter of, of us just being redeemed from the penalty of sin, which is death, but we were being redeemed from that to something. So when we talk about salvation with people, it's not a matter of just overcoming your sin, which is a great thing. That is what salvation is. But we, we stop short sometimes of talking about the fullness of what salvation is. It is me being redeemed from the penalty of sin, the brokenness in my soul, and being restored to what I originally was intended to be. That that mirror image within me, the mirror image of God, would be broken or be restored. The mirror image that was broken would be put back together by God and be restored. And I would once again reflect the glory of God back to himself into the world around me. That is what we're talking about in salvation. It is the brokenness of man being transformed and healed in Christ, redeemed from the penalty of sin, the brokenness of sin, to the fullness of God, what he has created us to be in the first place. So when we talk about salvation, again, it's not just when you talk to people, your friends or family or coworkers, whatever it is, make sure that you tell them the fullness of what salvation is. It is more than just uh, we stop doing bad things and we get to go to heaven. It is more than just being redeemed from the penalty of sin. I, the very foundation, the essence of who I am is changed to reflect what I was created to be in the first place. So that is what we are talking about in salvation. Uh, but, but I was saying that, that salvation in the message of Christ is foolishness to mankind, first of all, because it is, it is an offensive message. You see, when I was broken in that state, when the image of God was broken in my heart, I am the one who chose to step on the throne, to sit on the throne of my heart. And anybody who is walking in sin chooses to sit on the throne of their own hearts. You see, that's the place where Christ is supposed to be dwelling. But you see, as an offensive message that Christ would come to the human nature and say, everything that you're doing has to change. Everything that you're doing leads to death. Everything that you are doing leads to uh, a, a life where you, some people might experience uh, happiness. I'm not, we can't think that people who don't know Christ don't experience happiness or some sort of joy in life. They can. But the point is the foundation of their being is still broken. Uh, so the point is it is an offensive uh, message to go to someone and say, you need to step off the throne of your heart and allow somebody else to sit there. That is by nature an offensive message. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's good that it offends who we are. Oswald Chambers talked about uh, a lot. I think I've talked about this before, but he talks about being humiliated by God. And when I first read that, that was such an intense thought to think about being humiliated by God because immediately when we start thinking that, what do you think about? Like you stand up front in, in front and talk, say something foolish like, do we put the words on the screen? That's not what I meant by that. <laughs> there was a little more to that in my mind than how that came across in that moment. Uh, but that's what we're talking about, saying something foolish and everybody thinking, what is this guy talking about? Uh, and, and laughing at you or something like that. That's what we think about when we think about being humiliated. Uh, but you understand that when we talk about being humiliated by God, becoming humble in the presence of God, that is when the glory of God shines on my heart, the depths of my heart, the foundation of who I am, and truly reveals that brokenness in my soul. And it humiliates that. It shows its, its true position. That's what the humiliation of God in our hearts really means. Being humiliated by Him is His glory shining in 
my heart in showing me the true state of my heart. That I can't mask the true state of my heart any longer by, by money or uh, by going on vacations, by a job, by my family, whatever you, you can name, there are people that try to mask things in their heart with those things. But when the glory of God shines on that, nothing else can mask the true nature of my heart any longer, and it is fully revealed before God, and I see how I am totally spiritually bankrupt in that moment. And when I am humiliated in that way, my natural self is totally humiliated by God. You see, that's the moment where I come to him, and he doesn't leave me in that state of humiliation, but he raises me up, uh, as his word says, to be a kingdom of priests in him, to be his chosen people, to be, uh, the Bible says, friends of God, to be ambassadors of Christ, to be built together as his living house. That's what we're talking about, is being uh, having our natural self revealed in its fullness the misery of our broken state revealed by God, but he doesn't leave us in that place of humiliation before him. He then raises us up. You see, we have to go through that state of humiliation in order to be raised up in him. But the message of Christ is foolishness to people because how, how, how many people want to be humiliated by God? How many people want that, that foundation of their being to be exposed and have to admit that I don't have it all together or I have nothing or I have no power? There's not many people that want to admit that they don't have any power. There's not many people that are going to want to admit when you come before God, it is inevitable when you have, when his glory reveals your heart, you know in that moment that I have nothing. There's nothing that I can do to buy my salvation. There's nothing I can do to be good enough. God's holiness reveals the true state of my heart and how I have no power. I have no influence. I have absolutely nothing. But you see, then God turns that around. But that moment of humiliation for people, that is offensive. You see, in the end, the offense of the cross... uh, When the cross is applied to the heart of man, as I said, God then raises us up to walk in the fullness of what we were created to be. Uh, That was a lot longer way than I intended to say that the message of the cross is offensive to people. Uh, There are other ways, though, that uh, I think that people think uh, that the message of Christianity is is foolish. because sometimes we're not walking in the fullness of what we uh, proclaim to be living. We're not walking in the fullness of the blessings that God has made available to us. What I mean by that is it is drastically different in the eyes of an outsider or somebody that doesn't know Christ when somebody can say, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, I believe that our God is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, I am not going to bow before you. I am not going to accept what you have to offer me. I'm not going to bow before your gods. I'm not going to do that. Because I have confidence in God that whether in this life or the next, I will experience the fullness of him. I will experience his grace carrying me through suffering and pain or whatever it is. There is something to be said about having confidence that God is who he says he is, and that affects everything that we say and do. That every situation that I'm confronted with, I approach that situation out of confidence in who God is. You see, that is drastically different than the way that so many people live today 
all over the world where we hear things over and over about who God is and the blessings that he has for his people or the Bible simply saying that we're going to face suffering but that he will walk through it with us. Hearing those things over and over, but then there is a disconnect so many times between what we hear and our actual life. There are so many that have, have I, I have my church life, I have my Christian thing over here, but then when I get home, I'm just tired and I want to do my own thing, and this is kind of my time. Uh, whatever you can think of, there are ways that we, that we come home uh, or, or we have ways, maybe we, we have a job where we're trying to make money and we cut corners to try to make money. Whatever it is, there's a separation between what I hear and what we actually uh, employ on a daily basis or the application of what we hear. There's a disconnect between the truth that we hear sometimes and the actual application of that. Now, why on earth would anyone want to hear somebody telling them about Christ when they don't actually see that you're walking in confidence with the God that you proclaim to live by? Talking about believing that this Christ suffered for me so that my brokenness could be restored in him. But the first time something difficult comes along, you throw that all to the side and you have no confidence in God whatsoever. You see that? There is... There is a greater, uh, uh, our lives have a way of speaking the message of Christ in its fullness, not even just with our words. We don't have to use our words. When people look on and see that you're confronted with something difficult and your first reaction is to act out of your confidence in God, they will see that there is something different in you. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. You see, the point of this is that for years, for years, she has come up with methods and programs and ways to try to reach out to people, and it has done no good whatsoever. I mean, I cannot tell you in my lifetime in ministry how many leadership classes I have been to, how many books on leadership people give you. And, and I'm not saying those things are inherently bad in themselves. They're not. But you see, there is something different about simply acting in confidence in God. When my life shows that I am actually confident in the God I say I believe in, that none of the other stuff matters then. You see, that is what makes the offensive nature of the message of Christ, it makes it attractive to somebody who knows nothing about him. Because they look on and say, you actually believe, you live the way that you say you believe. When you say that your God is able to do immeasurably more than you ask or imagine, you actually live like he is able to do more than you, ask, than you can ask or imagine. You see, we have to make sure that our actions on a daily basis line up with what we say we believe. And this, is, this isn't just for people outside of the church. This isn't just for people who know nothing about God. Why on earth would our kids grow up and want something to do with a God that we show we have no confidence in? Why would they do that? They're going to grow up, they're going to go off to colleges and hear people telling them over and over how foolish it is to believe in God. There's not a God. The science says there's nothing. There's no God beyond this world. There's nothing. Why would you believe something so foolish? They're going to be confronted with that. 
And I can guarantee you, if they have not been brought up in families, in churches that have confidence in God and live like they have confidence in God, there is a huge chance that they're going to turn away. It's not, it's not any, I've heard people, you know, we wonder why do, our peop, why do our young people turn away when they get to a certain age? It's because we're not walking in confidence in God. They want to see people who are actually believing or walking as though they believe what they say they believe. Uh, so we have to make sure in everything that we do that we are, when we're confronted with situations, uh, that we approach a situation out of confidence in God. Um, let me skip ahead here. So how do we, call, how do we cultivate confidence in God? There, these are just a few things. There are a lot more ways to do this. I'm not going to be able to cover all of them today. But the first thing that we have to do is make, we make it a practice to seek God and his wisdom on all matters by which we are confronted. And we do that first. We make it a practice to seek God's counsel, his presence, his thoughts, his desires, first before anything else. Now, there's a danger in the church even to start talking to other church members about a situation you're going through before you talk to God. You need to talk to other people in the church about it. I'm not saying not to do that. Absolutely find people in the church that you have confidence in them, that they are full of wisdom, and talk to those people. I'm just saying talk to God first. You see, because we can start getting on the phone and talking to other people and hearing all their thoughts. Uh, I've seen situations like that. I've seen situations where, uh, uh, I won't say too much detail because we're recording this, but situations where somebody felt called somewhere and they started hearing the voices of other people around them, and they didn't end up going. Now, I'm not think things have been fine since then. I'm not. I'm not saying uh, maybe they weren't supposed to go there. I don't know. But what I am saying is there were a lot of people giving all the reasons why you shouldn't do this, and I'm not sure that's always wise. We have to be. We have to understand that. Though my brothers and sisters in Christ can speak the wisdom of God, that I need to approach him first and foremost. I need to hear his voice before everybody else. Uh, Psalm 42.11 says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for yet I will praise him, my Savior and my God. Why is my soul downcast? Do you see those moments where we enter into a time of, of pain or suffering or not understanding where things are going or why things are going the way they are, before you start talking to everybody else and hearing their opinions on it, make sure that you are spending time hearing God's voice on those matters. Uh, so we have to make it a practice to seek God first in his wisdom. And we have to make it a practice to be obedient to the truth that has been revealed to us. First uh, John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. It says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and deed, but uh, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. In verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive for him because uh, we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And then verse uh, 24, and whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit of God whom he has given us. So he says again in verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and, our, and reassure our hearts before him by, by living the things that we are hearing. That is how we have reassurance and confidence before God. Not only that we are walking with him, not only that he is who he says he is, but that he will do what he says he will do. You see, when we are obedient to the truth that is laid out before us, it begins to affect our hearts. It begins to affect the nature of who we are. As we said, the foundation, the essence of who I am is changed by the application of what I am hearing. And when I begin to walk that way, it begins to give me reassurance and confidence that God is who he says he is, that I walk with him, that I am his child, that he is able to do immeasurably more than I can ask or imagine. All of those things that God says I begin to have confidence in those things by obedience to what he has laid out. Now, that's a simple concept. But why, why would God bless people? Why would he give peace in the hearts of people who hear what he has to say, who, who hear him say, this is the way that you ought to live, or you ought to forgive people, or, or whatever it is in his word. You ought to do these things. And then we ignore it and expect to experience the peace and confidence in God. That's not going to happen. Peace and reassurance, confidence in God, all of those things come by us taking the step to say, you said through your word that I should forgive people. Okay, I'm going to do that. No matter how difficult that might be, I'm going to do it. Trusting then that you will do something in my heart, make me able to do that. And as you do that, God will build confidence and reassurance in your hearts. Uh we have to make it a practice to be obedient to the truth that is revealed to us. The next thing is simply that we have to be an active member of the body of Christ. Hebrews 10, uh, starting verse 23, it says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Uh, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, there is something, as we've said before, you can worship God anywhere. You can worship God when you're at home uh, mowing your lawn or doing your grass or whatever you have to do at home. You can worship God in all of those moments. You can worship God in your car. You can do any of those things on your own. You don't need anyone else to usher you into the presence of God. But there is something different that happens when the body of Christ comes together, committed to each other in his love, sacrificially expressing his love to one another, 
and spurring one another on to love and good deeds. You see, we get an encouragement to press on that I can't find when I'm simply by myself. The Bible says that as long as it is possible for you, because I know there are places in this world where people are on their own, they don't have anyone else. And I believe God will respond to them accordingly and encourage them and give them everything that they can't get from the body. But I'm saying in general, in our country, where we're at, each one of us can find a place to be connected to brothers and sisters in Christ. The Bible says that we each, each one of us has something in the church that we are supposed to do. Each one of us has a gift, an ability, a talent, something that we are supposed to do in the body. And we've said this before, I can't do everything in the church myself. You can't do everything in the church yourself because I wasn't made to be able to do everything in the church myself. You weren't made to be able to do everything in the church yourself. Not one of us has everything it takes to make the body of Christ function the way it should function. It takes every single member looking off to Christ, and in that then we are united to carry out the functions of the body of Christ. And one of those functions is, as it says here, to spur one another on Words, love and good deeds, encouraging one another all the more as you see that final day approaching. You see, it is essential that each member of the body of Christ is active because you have an active role to play. And when we choose not to be an active part of the body, then the body begins to be sick and miss its purpose and not, not as strong as it could be to carry out the purposes of that God has for the church. Uh, the body of Christ is vital to the cultivation of confidence in God within the heart of each member. You see, there is something that happens in the heart of believers when I go to God first about matters, but then I am able to go to people knowing that they are spiritual people, knowing that they are pursuing God, and I'm able to hear what they have to say. And I, I don't know, I'm sure a lot of you have experienced the moments where you just get to talk to somebody about what God is doing and you experience such a peace. Just hearing that God is moving in somebody else. Just hearing the testimony of somebody else, that God has worked in my life. That he has not let me down, that he has carried me through and he will carry you too also. You see, there is something that happens in the hearts of believers when I am connected with brothers and sisters in Christ who have been washed by the same blood of Christ that I have been washed with. That we are members of the same house, the same church. We are children of God together, co-heirs of Christ together. Uh, the body of Christ is vital to the cultivation of confidence in God. Uh, the second thing that we do in all of this is we have to simply resolve ourselves to honor God no matter what we face. In verse 17, Daniel chapter 3, starting verse 17, he says, If we are thrown into blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from, uh, from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. You see, we have to resolve ourselves to honor God and make it a foundational principle of life. And that becomes the standard by which we live on a daily basis. You see, this, isn't, this life that we live in 
our faith journey is not something that we can ever just set on a shelf and revisit whenever we feel like revisiting it. This is something that you have to every single day when we wake up resolve ourselves that whatever I am confronted with today, I'm going to honor God in it. Whatever situation confronts me, whether it's something where I can uh, gain something by being dishonest or whatever you can think of, when we wake up in the morning resolving ourselves that I am going to honor God in my commitment to his purposes and the cultivation of a heart of worship within me. You see, there are many of us who are confronted with opportunities to compromise. They, they easily could have, when they were confronted with being thrown into the fire, they easily could have uh, you know, sat around and had their discussions about, well, if I bow before the idol and I don't actually mean it, does it, does it mean anything? They could have found a way to try to justify their position to not have to be thrown into the fire. There are some situations that we're going to be confronted with as Christians where when we deal with it, we know that the second we confront this issue, I'm going to be thrown in a fire. I, I, I'm, I'll tell you, just from, just from a leadership side in, in the church, there, there, are, there are situations that I've seen come up in churches where somebody does something it has nothing to do necessarily with the body. He didn't, they, nothing happened to the body necessarily. But somebody did something outside and had to be confronted by leadership. And I'm telling you situations have come up where no matter what the leadership did, somebody was going to be mad at them. It didn't matter what they did. They didn't ask to be put in that position. It was somebody else had nothing to do with them. Never asked to be put in that, that situation. But whatever they did... Somebody was going to be mad. That's not just in leadership in the church. There are situations that you deal with out in the world where you would be confronted with the same things. No, if you take a stand for something that is true or doing something the right way, you're going to be thrown into fire. You see, we have the opportunity to compromise in situations like that. But to have that resolve where I don't care what I am going to face, I might be thrown in this fire and lose everything that I have. My God is able to save me from it, but even if he doesn't, I will not be moved on this situation. I will not compromise. I will not back down because my uh, life is meant to glorify my Father in heaven. And I have confidence in him that whether he delivers me in this situation or even if it's ultimately he delivers me in death from the suffering of this world, I have confidence that he knows what he's doing that he is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. And you see, that is, not, that is not something where we can wait to the moment where a compromise is presented to start deciding if we're going to have confidence in God. You cannot wait for those moments to come up to start trying to figure out, what am I going to do here? There has to be preparation before we get to the moments of being confronted with that furnace. There has to be preparation before that. Long before that, we have to have that build up in our souls that I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to compromise. I resolve myself to follow God wherever he leads, whether that's into a furnace or not. 
And that's why it is important to cultivate the heart of confidence in God because I am cultivating that today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And someday off in the future, it's guaranteed that I'm going to face pain and suffering in a furnace. It's going to happen. But the question is, have we prepared ourselves on that road or have we waited to that moment to start deciding, what am I going to do here? Do I believe God is who he says he is or do I not? Because if, that's, if we wait until that moment, it's almost guaranteed that you're going to compromise. You see, it is a daily pursuit of God where in the morning I wake up, resolve myself to follow him, and I actively cultivate a heart of confidence that he is who he says he is. Um, the last, this is the last thing that I'll say. Maybe. Uh, we have to resist the temptation to create a, a contractual relationship with God. We have to resist the temptation to create a contractual relationship with God, meaning that my love for him is sacrificial the same way that his sacrificial love was expressed to me. You see, the sacrificial love of God is not based on how the person that it's offered to responds. The sacrificial Christ died for every person. Now, they might not choose to step into that, but he still died for those people. He still offered himself. The Bible says, we've talked about before, that he stands. The Bible says, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock, waiting, calling out to you. And if anyone would hear my voice and open the door, then I will come in. And when he comes in, then he will do everything else. He will transform your heart if you allow him to. He will be the one to transform your heart. But Steve, we still have to open the door to him. But whether we open the door or not, he still stands at the door and knocks. The sacrificial love of God is not based on what is received. It's not based on humanity reciprocating that back to himself. It is offered freely. In the same way, my love relationship with God should not be based on what he does or what I think he should do in return. The way that I love God should be based simply on uh, his goodness to me in general. What, I, I can't remember who said it, but uh, they said that every single one of us deserves death. Anything less is mercy. And for that reason alone, I offer myself to God uh, in sacrificial love. If he never does anything else for me, that I would offer myself uh, to him sacrificially. I say that because so many times, our pursuit of God is based on what we want things to look like. Like, I'll pursue you if you do this. Or because you didn't do this, now I don't want to follow you anymore. It can't be based on that. We resolve ourselves to have a relationship with God that's based on sacrificial love uh, alone. This is the last thing I say, I promise. The last thing we have to do is anticipate anticipate that the heat will be turned up in verse 19, Daniel three nineteen. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and, com- uh, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into blazing fire. Because they didn't do what the king wanted them to do, he ordered that the fire would be turned up, the heat would be turned up. And you see, there's going to be moments where we're going to be thrown into a furnace and we're going to think, how can I deal with this? How can I get through this? And all of a sudden, something's going to happen and the heat's going to be turned up. 
You see, there's going to be moments where we can't rely on ourselves. We have nothing else. We shouldn't rely on ourselves in the first place, but I'm saying when we step into situations, sometimes we try to deal with them, and then you get in the middle of it and realize, I, I can't deal with this. You see, just like I said, we have to anticipate that suffering is going to come in the first place, and it might not stop. It might get worse. I might deal with suffering from now till the day I die. That might happen. God doesn't promise in salvation, and knowing him, he doesn't promise that we're not going to have hardship or difficulties or pain or loss. He doesn't promise that. But he promises that, just like we saw in this passage, when you walk through the fire, I will be with you. Isaiah 43 says, when you walk through the fires, I will be with you. The same way we see here with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were thrown into the fire, there was one who was there with them, standing with them, guarding their hearts, protecting them. They were still in the fire, but they were able to endure the fire because of the one who was with them. As the worship team comes up and we close today, you just simply ask yourselves in these moments, do we actually have confidence in God that he is who he says he is, that he is able to do what he says he will do? That he is able to do immeasurably more than I ask, can ask or imagine? We make it a practice of cultivating a heart of confidence in God, resolving ourselves to follow him. Come Whatever comes, it doesn't matter that I'm going to follow God. God wants to work in his people. Even in the midst of the fire, he will still guard and protect our hearts to endure suffering. And at times, he will carry us through and out of the suffering. But even if he doesn't, even if, we, even if the call is just to endure, that is what we do. Because we have confidence in him. God, we thank you today for the honor that we have in following you and walking with you every day. We thank you for the confidence that we can have that you are who you say you are, that you never fail, that you are faithful, that your love is always extended to us, that your peace is always extended to us, protecting our hearts. Father, help us to trust in that today. Help us to be people who resolve ourselves to follow you, to honor you, to love you, no matter what comes. Father, bind us together as your church. Help us to be people that would encourage each other daily, that we would spur one another on to love and good deeds, that we would love you beyond just hearing what you have to say to us, but we would apply your truths to our hearts. And in that, then, we would have the confidence to continue walking in greater depths with you. Father, we love you today. It is in your name we pray, amen. If you have a need today, you can come over here and pray by yourself. Nobody will come with you. If you have a need, you want to pray with somebody, you can come over here and somebody will come to pray with you.